Well, some of you may be wondering if my tie has anything to do with any events that have transpired over the last week. I cannot answer that question directly, but I will say I've not been able to wear this in 10 years. Well, it's good to be together this morning, no matter where you come down on any of that. It's good to be together. I hope you enjoyed your time this past Thursday uh, on Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving traditions, such as the Lions losing. It's a Thanksgiving tradition for all, I think. Uh, But I do hope you enjoyed your time with family and friends. We certainly did. We're able to hang out with some of Bethany's family and then spend the the evening with my parents and had a good time. And then I hope you were able to uh, at least set aside a few moments to meditate on uh, something that the Lord has done for you this past year, able to, to look back and, and think specifically about areas that you are thankful for and that you can direct your attention to Him um, in gratefulness and thankfulness. Uh, this week I found out, I didn't know this, but Thanksgiving, I probably should have known this, but Thanksgiving did not become a national holiday here in the United States. It wasn't officially recognized at the national level until a proclamation from Abraham Lincoln right in the middle of the Civil War in 1863. Now, up until that point, uh, people did celebrate Thanksgiving, but different states every year would assign a different day as a Thanksgiving holiday. And so you, could, you would end up celebrating it differently if you lived in Virginia versus New York or wherever you might be. Um, and so it was different all over the country and it was determined by your state. Uh, But there was this magazine editor who was passionate about Thanksgiving becoming a national holiday, and she wrote Lincoln a letter uh, that he received at the end of September that year in 1863, and she urged him to formally set aside a day every year as a national holiday um, for all states to observe a time of looking back over the last year and giving thanks to the Lord for for all that he had done. Um, And so he responded a few days later. Uh, beginning of October, I believe, and issued a Thanksgiving proclamation. And I want to read the first little part of that to you. And I actually have it on the screen here. The year that is drawing towards its close has been filled with the blessings of fruitful fields and healthful skies. To these bounties, which are so constantly enjoyed that we are prone to forget the source from which they come, others have been added which are of so extraordinary a nature that they cannot fail to penetrate and soften even the heart which is habitually insensible to the ever-watchful providence of Almighty God. Now, the whole thing goes on to talk about the Civil War that they're engaged in and how people do have opportunity to be thankful in the midst of that. But I love the language that this begins with here. If you stop for a moment and think about it, even in the midst of a crazy time like the Civil War, our lives are filled with so many blessings. And they're filled with so many blessings so consistently that it's hard to to grasp and it's hard to actually step back and recognize that sometimes. And I think part of the reason for that is we're so used to, we're so accustomed to God's overflowing goodness coming to us in blessing after blessing, that the language used here is accurate. Our hearts are habitually insensible. It's like we become callous and hard 
to the gifts of God's providential care for us day after day. And so this is a good idea. I love Thanksgiving, and this is part of the reason, but it is a good idea to set aside a day every year and to get into a rhythm of thinking at least a little bit on that day about what God has done for us and the blessings that He has brought to us over the past year. And He has done so much above and beyond what we could ever deserve, for sure. And so I think when you ponder Thanksgiving, the question always is, for me and probably for you as well, how do we take this time of thankfulness near the end of the year when we look back over what God has done, and how do we take that experience and develop that into a regular, habitual act of giving thanks to the Lord for what He has done? How do we make that a mindset and a disposition that to some extent comes naturally to us? We recognize the goodness, we recognize the blessings, and we see those, and our hearts respond in thankfulness. And it's not just one week a year. It's not just occasionally as something really, really good happens, but it's normal, and we grow accustomed to giving thanks. I mean, there's no doubt that Scripture calls us to a life of thankfulness, right? I mean, you see this all over the place, a couple of examples in the New Testament. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, right? Whatever you do, any action, any words you speak, the regular rhythm of your life should be one of giving thanks to God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. But what happens to us is our sinful nature often responds to the culture around us, and the culture doesn't exactly shape and form us into thankful people. I read a really helpful article on Thanksgiving this week, and here's what this author had to say. Given the deformations, right, not forming us into Christ-like character, but the deformations in our cultural moment, many have had a hard time recognizing what is good. Suffering from dim eyes and occluded souls, we have become hard of seeing, and we struggle to see reality as good, wonderful, joyous. We are inclined to see failure and gaps rather than goodness. Our society is not materially poor, but we are spiritually, existentially impoverished. We have thick wallets, but thin and starving souls. I love that last line. We have thick wallets, but thin and starving souls. And so this morning, I want to let the Word of God feed our thin and starving souls when it comes to thankfulness. And so you can turn with me, if you're not there yet, to a classic, the classic psalm of thanksgiving, of giving thanks, which is Psalm 100. And this is where we'll be this morning, Psalm 100. Whenever I think of thanksgiving and particular passages of Scripture, for whatever reason from my childhood, I just, this is it. <laughs> this is like the psalm. You know, it's always on some uh, image with a a bunch of food behind it, right? It's Psalm 100. Um, it's the Psalm of Thanksgiving. And so in this Psalm this morning, and there's a reason for that, in this Psalm this morning, we're going to see two keys 
to cultivating a thankful heart. Quite simple in many ways, but I want to help you with this this morning, how to develop thankfulness into a virtue and a disposition of your life. So two keys to cultivating a thankful heart, and the first one of these is found in the first section of this psalm, which makes up almost the whole thing, verses 1 through 4, and it is this, accept the appropriateness of thankfulness to God. This is the way things should be to have a thankful heart. I want you to notice at the very beginning of this psalm that you see the words, a psalm for giving thanks. Your Bible probably, like mine, has a a heading above those words. The heading above those words in my Bible says, his steadfast love endures forever. That heading is added by the editors. And I was glad to hear Zach read this heading, a psalm for giving thanks, because that heading is in the original language. Now, every psalm does not have a heading like this. Some of them do, some of them don't. If you look up at Psalm 99, right up the page, you'll see an editorial heading, a summary that has been added. Mine says, the Lord our God is holy. But you don't see a heading under that because it's not there in Hebrew. And so this one has a heading in Hebrew, and it gives us a little bit more information about the psalm, about the theme of it. Sometimes these headings will even give us information about the context in which the psalm was written. I believe these are inspired. They're part of the Word of God. And so here you see it says, a psalm for giving thanks or a psalm for confession, confession meaning God's confessing who God is and what he has done. And so this psalm, according to Scripture, was used for calling people, commanding people to give thanks, grateful praise to God. Now in Hebrew, the word that's translated giving thanks here is one word. Really, this whole heading is just two words, but the word for giving thanks is very similar. It's from the same root as the word that means to praise. And so oftentimes we may think of those as different, right? Praise is something we do on Sunday morning when we sing to the Lord, and giving thanks is maybe something we do in our prayer time where we list out things, blessings we've received from God, and so we give thanks there, we give praise here, but there's a lot of overlap between thankfulness and praise. The giving of thanks is an act and a mindset that is in the same family as worship and praise. And so I I like the, the way of saying this as grateful praise. That's what this psalm is calling us to, grateful praise. And by giving thanks to God, by articulating who he is and what he's done and thanking him for that, you are worshiping him. You are rightly recognizing who he is and what he's done. Now, in this psalm, it's very well laid out, I think very clearly laid out into two pieces. The first one of these pieces is verses 1 through 4, and I want you to notice with me there are commands given in these verses. There are seven of them. Look at the commands. I'm going to list them to you. Make a joyful noise. That's one. Verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness. Two. And at the end of verse 2, the third command, come into his presence with singing. The fourth command in verse 3, know that the Lord, he is God. And then there's 
explanation under that in verse 3. The fifth command, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. And then the last two, give thanks to him, six, and bless his name is seven. And so the whole first part, most of this psalm, is, is in the imperative. It's commanding, it's calling us and calling the people of Israel to come together and to give their grateful praise to God. Thankfulness is commanded here because it's fitting, it's right, and it's appropriate to position ourselves before God with this mindset. When you think about other situations in life that call for a particular disposition or a particular way of acting and handling yourself, if you go to a funeral, there's an appropriate way of carrying yourself. If you get invited into the Oval Office and you're going to meet the president there, there is an appropriate way of handling yourself. And so what this psalm is calling us to is to rightly set ourselves before God, to handle ourselves correctly and in a fitting way before him. Now, I want you to notice with these seven commands that there's one command right in the middle, all right? Verse 3. This is the middle command. So you got three before it, three after it, and this is the middle command. Know that the Lord, he is God. Now, the two commands surrounding this, I want you to notice them. Verse 2, the third command, come into his presence with singing. And then I want you to look down at verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Both of those sound very similar. You come into his presence, you enter his gates, and enter into his courts with praise. And so those commands surrounding this center one, sort of like sandwich, like bread around the meat of a sandwich, those two commands are talking to a worshiper who is coming into God's place. We've talked a lot about God's place in the book of Exodus, haven't we? The tabernacle, and then into the temple. And of course, those locations would have been incredibly significant to the worship and the life of Israel. There was no place more important than the tabernacle or the temple in the life of Israel. That was where you approached God. That was where you brought your gift to God. It's where you brought your praise to him and your sacrifice to him. And you had to be in that physical location during this time to do that. And so this psalm is saying, bring your gift of joyful praise into his presence. Come to the temple and bring your offering to him. Bring your thanksgiving to him. And when you do that, the mindset that is necessary for that grateful praise to come is found in verse 3. This is the centerpiece in many ways of this first section. And this describes, I think, the posture of your heart that is necessary if you're going to cultivate a disposition and a virtue, the virtue of thankfulness. And this is the heart posture I've tried to capture in this first uh, key to cultivating a thankful heart. Accept the appropriateness of thankfulness to God. So what is it? Verse 3. Know that the Lord, He is God. To cultivate a thankful heart, you and I must know 
that Yahweh, look at the language there, the Lord, it says, he is God. That Yahweh, the same word that is used in the book of Exodus as God reveals himself to Moses and the people, you must know that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the one and only true God. To be thankful to him, your heart has to come to this conclusion. It has to draw this conclusion by observation and by reflection. And you cannot be convinced otherwise. The godness, we'll get to goodness later, but the godness of God is necessary. It has to become the one great reality of your life, the way you carry yourself through life. There's a story in 1 Kings where a whole group of people go through this experience that I'm going to describe to you in a minute, where they suddenly realize and recognize that this is the only God. The God of Israel is it. He is the sole authority, and he is superior to any other God. Maybe you're starting to think through the the book of 1 Kings, and you're starting to wonder what story that is, and you probably know this story. It's the story of the showdown between the priests of Baal and Elijah, the prophet of Yahweh. Great story, humorous story in many ways. But the priests of Baal have attempted to get their God, in quotes, lowercase g, to send fire onto this altar and to consume the offering. And they have worked really, really hard to try to get this to happen. They've done their little ritual, they've jumped around all day, and they've even gone to the point of cutting themselves, and the text says that the blood flowed freely. They're trying to provoke their God into sending fire down and to consuming the offering that they have given. And of course, nothing happens. And Elijah mocks them and mocks their supposed God for this. And so when they're done and they're bleeding profusely because of what they've they've tried to get their God to do, Elijah has his turn. And before praying to God, he has the men pour water on the offering, which makes it a little more difficult to catch on fire, And they pour so much water on the offering that it actually soaks the whole thing, soaks the altar, and fills up the trench around the altar. Multiple times he has them do this. And then look what he prays in verses 36 to 39. At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And then the response. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, Yahweh, He is God. It's the same language that's used in Psalm 100 here. And so when you read this phrase, know, this is what Elijah prayed that they would know, know that the Lord, He is God, this phrase indicates that Yahweh God, the God of the Bible, He's it. There is no one else. He is God alone. No other gods are actually gods. They don't have any authority. 
And because they don't have any authority and because he's God alone, the next phrase flows very naturally from that in Psalm 100. Look there. No, deep in your heart, be convinced that the Lord Yahweh, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. He's alone. He's it. He's the God that created everything. And because he is the creator God, then he has sole authority in the universe. No other rivals. No other gods exist. And because he has created you, you are not autonomous. You and I do not determine the course of our lives. He does. He makes the decisions. And because we're not autonomous, we are accountable to him. We're responsible to him. He's made us and we are his. Another translation here talks about that uh, we are his or we are not ourselves. We did not make ourselves. That's another way that people have translated this. And both of those things are quite true. And in this psalm, the point is that thankfulness to God does not happen unless your heart is thoroughly convinced of this reality. Augustine commented on this psalm and said this, What reason have ye for exultation? What reason have ye for pride? Another made you. The same who made you suffereth from you. But ye extol yourselves and glory in yourselves as if ye were created by yourselves. That is our problem, isn't it? We act as if we created ourselves and we are autonomous and we can make our own path and decide for ourselves who we are and what happens. But the reality is he has made us and we are his. And not only has he made us, and he's here specifically talking to Israel, he created them and he redeemed them. Look at the rest of verse 3. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people. The word people there is the center word of this psalm. It's like everything builds toward this and everything flows from this reality when it comes to a thankful heart. God has created Israel and then he has called them to himself and made them his chosen people. He redeemed them from Egypt and they are the sheep of his pasture. If you, we don't have time this morning, but there is a wonderful thread in the Old Testament that speaks to God being the shepherd and his people being his sheep. Obviously, Psalm 23, Ezekiel 34. It's a beautiful picture of God leading and loving his people, the sheep that he has created and the sheep who belong to him. And all of this the fact that he has created us, we are accountable to him. The fact that he is God alone and the fact that he has redeemed us is the church from sin and Israel from Egypt and called them to be his people. All of that is necessary for us to cultivate a thankful heart before him. And all of that makes it appropriate for us to respond to him this way. And it makes us it, makes, it, it is appropriate for us to respond this way even when times are difficult and times are tough, which that's when it's hardest to have a thankful heart. That's when it's hardest to recognize who God is. And that brings us to our, our second key to cultivating a thankful heart. Embrace the reasons for thankfulness to God. And so this is a beautifully 
structured and laid out psalm. You have all these commands in verses 1 through 4 with this center command in verse 3, calling us to know that the Lord, He is God. We are accountable to Him as His people, as He is the Creator. And you have all these commands around that, calling Israel to come into His presence with grateful praise as they draw near to Him, bring their gifts of thankfulness to Him. And now in verse 5, you get the reasons for this. Look there. It begins with the word for. You could translate this because. So you're good Bible students. You know that when you see a word like this, you're getting an explanation. Because here's the reasons why you are and I am to worship Him with grateful praise. This is why it's appropriate for us to respond to God this way. Verse 5 lays out three attributes of God brings all of these three qualities together. And when you and I think about these three qualities and we set our minds to ponder who God is in these three ways, it should cause us to respond as verse 1 calls us to. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. To come to Him with grateful praise and thankfulness. So what are these qualities? Look at verse 5. For, because... The Lord is good. There's the first one. Yahweh is good. The second one is his steadfast love endures forever. And then the third one in the third line of verse 5, his faithfulness. So let's look at these separately, and then we'll bring them all together. First of all, the Lord is good. This is defining who he is. This is the word, the same word that is used in Genesis 1. In verse 31, as God wraps up the sixth day of creation. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. God, out of his goodness, out of his character, does his work, and he speaks all of creation into existence And then he steps back, and because he is fundamentally good, what he has created is good, very good as well. And so he sort of steps back and assesses the situation and declares all of this good. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's beautiful, it's designed well, and it's made, all of creation is made to accomplish the purpose that God has for it. It's put together well. And so even today, as you and I look around at creation, at the sunset that you may see, the fall leaves, which are mostly gone now, the first snow, which is quite beautiful. Where I'm from in Virginia, you get a glimpse of the Blue Ridge Mountains looking all hazy over the horizon. When you go to the the ocean in the summer and you hear the crash of the waves, all of that good, all of that beauty and creation testifies to the goodness of God. It is well designed. It is put together in a way that draws attention and glory to his character. But his goodness is also put on display, not just through creation, but through his works of redemption, through how he saves and redeems his people. I mean, we saw that in verse 3, right? Know that the Lord, he is God, it is he who's made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And that testifies to his goodness. 
But other places in Scripture do as well. Psalm 25. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. And so God's goodness, what is described here in verse 5, is a reason for giving grateful praise to God. God's goodness stands behind all all of his actions. And I say and I emphasize the word all a couple of times because his goodness stands behind even his actions that do not seem good based on our assessment of them. Even things that we look at and go, ah, I just don't know. I am sure each and every one of you have gone through something difficult this past year. And I'm confident that there are moments in the midst of that that even if it's just for a moment, make you doubt God's goodness. How can God be good when this is happening, when these circumstances are coming to pass? The problem is not with God's character. The problem is not with God's character. It's with our ability to see. We can't see well enough. We don't have his perspective. The storm clouds sometimes cover his smiling face. But it's still there. And he's still good. I was sent a blog article a couple of weeks ago written by a lady named Ann Voskamp, and she tells this story that just grabbed my attention. And I have been thinking about this, and I wanted to tell you this story uh, that she tells in this article. It's a story of an old man who lives in a village and keeps horses. And he has a, a paddock of horses that are fenced in. And one day, a white stallion rides into his paddock and ends up there. And as this happens, all the villagers who live around him congratulate him on his good fortune. And the old man replies to their congratulations, is it a curse or a blessing? All we can see is a sliver. Who can see what will come next? A few weeks later, the white horse runs off and escapes. And the townsfolk again, come and talk to him, and they're convinced that the white stallion had been a curse. But the old man responds to that and is satisfied in the will of God and says, I cannot see as he sees. Well, then a little while later, the white horse returns with a dozen more horses. And the townsfolk again, who are apparently tossed to and fro with everything that happens, say it's a blessing. Unbelievable that this has happened to you. Imagine your good fortune. And the guy replies, it is as he wills, and I give thanks for his will. Not long after that, the old man's only son broke his leg when he was thrown from the white stallion. Now the town folk all bemoan his bad fortune, that the white stallion has come. And the old man offered this, we'll see, we'll see. It is as he wills, and I give thanks for his will. Not long after that, a draft for a war took all the young men off to battle, but the son with the broken leg was allowed to remain. 
The villagers all proclaimed the good fortune of the white horse and the accident that had happened. And the old man said this, we only see or we see only a sliver of the sum. We cannot see how the bad might be good. God is sovereign and he is good and he sees and works all things together for good. And then here's what the author of, of that story wrote, where I read that story. She said this, hasn't that been the lie right since our Genesis beginning that we can see? When we ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Satan hissed then that we'd know what is good and evil, that we'd really see. But the father of lies, he'd duped us in the whole nine yards. Though we ate of that tree, we did not become like God. We have no knowledge of good and evil apart from God. Our heart optics are not omniscient. How can I really see if a seeming disaster or dilemma is actually dire? How do we know if what looks like it's the worst might be for our best? How do we know if what looks all wrong could turn things all right? How do we know if what seems wrong isn't actually part of writing a redemptive story? And then here's how she she ends, or what, the part that I'm going to read to you. My focus need only be on him to only faithfully see his word to wholly obey. Because behind everything is God's goodness, and our sight is limited. And so that's how we give thanks in all circumstances, as 1 Thessalonians 5.18 calls us to. Now, in this text, in Psalm 100, verse 5, that goodness gets worked out in two further attributes, two further qualities. Look at the rest of verse 5. His steadfast love endures forever, his faithfulness to all generations. First of all, his steadfast love. It's the second quality here. Both of these are working out God's goodness, which is sort of the umbrella attribute given here. The idea of steadfast love, this word is something that was used, a word that was used in Exodus 34 a couple of times to talk about God as God revealed himself to Moses and to Israel. And so the idea behind steadfast love is that God makes a covenant and a commitment with his people, and then he takes up the responsibility to care for his people. He will act on their behalf because of his steadfast love. Because of his covenant commitment to them, he will defend. He will act. He will help. He will redeem. And he will do this because he knows that his people are not adequate to care for themselves. And so he puts himself on the line, as it were, to care for them. And God's goodness here and steadfast love is played out in his redemptive purposes for his people. But the second attribute that works out God's goodness here is his faithfulness. He's faithful to all generations. God's faithfulness is simply his goodness over time. You can't know if someone is faithful in one week. It takes time. And God's goodness 
does not slide back and forth. He's not slipping on the circumstances. He doesn't go between good and not good and capable and incapable. He's always in control and always faithful. His goodness is always there. He doesn't lose his footing. He's steady. He's a rock. And his faithfulness describes his goodness to his people over generations and generations and over years and over the course of your lifetime and of mine. Listen to Isaiah 25 and verse 1. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. His faithfulness is his goodness over time. And when you put all three of these together, these qualities, this is one of the few places in Scripture where all of these are brought together in a description of God. But when you put all of these together, you get this beautiful picture of a God who doesn't just flippantly do good. He's not casual about his goodness. You get the picture of a God who delights to do good. He is passionate about it. He's energetic about doing good. He delights to do good to those that he has committed himself to through a covenant. And that commitment and that delight to do good will never change. It's unalterable. Our circumstances will change, right? They do from minute to minute. From hour to hour, we grow weak, we're tired, we sin, we fall short of doing what is required of us, we fail, but God never does. He's faithful, his steadfast love endures forever because he is good. So, put all this together from Psalm 100. How do you turn the brief moments of thankfulness around the Thanksgiving table when maybe you read Scripture together and paused to pray and thank the Lord for His goodness? How do you take those brief moments that you've experienced and then make them into a lifestyle, something that is consistent and is there? You accept the appropriateness of thankfulness to God because He's God. Because he is God and I am not. And that is a good thing to remind ourselves of all the time. Thank you, Stephen Curtis Chapman, for that one. If you were born after the 1990s, you probably don't know that song. (laughs) Accept the appropriateness of thankfulness to God because he is God and I am not God. And then... Once you recognize the appropriateness of that, embrace the reasons for it. And there are good reasons to be thankful to God. He is good, and he is good even when you and I cannot see that he is good. When something looks like a disaster, we have no idea what God is doing behind the scenes and how he is working. And in light of that, I want to close our time this morning by reading a couple of stanzas from one of my favorite hymns. Uh, God Moves in a Mysterious Way by William Cooper. If you never heard this before or never read it, you should go look up the whole thing. Um, It is magnificent. And Cooper 
some of you may know, struggled with depression and anxiety and just was in a dark place for a lot of his life. Wrote tons of songs and was always trying to wrestle through whether or not God was good and how to recognize his goodness. And I think this song really gets to the heart of, of what we need to hold to when circumstances make it seem like God is not good. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Let's pray. Father, help us to be thankful people. Even when circumstances make it seem like you're not there, like you're absent, like you're distant, like you don't care, like you're upset with us, help us to be thankful people because we know based on your word, which is true, is accurate, is faithful, is inerrant, we know based on your word that you are good, that your steadfast love endures forever and your faithfulness to all generations. That is true and there's nothing that can change that. And so when we encounter difficulty, help us to rest on those realities, the reality of your character and your goodness and your faithfulness. And then help that to draw out thankfulness in all circumstances. Help that to, to draw out grateful praise to you. And then as we become people who are thankful, Lord, that will change how we see ourselves and see one another and see the world around us. And so we're asking this morning for you to, to form us into Christ-like people through the scriptures. Thank you for all you've done. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.